Today on the Matt Wall Show, what is the cost of a lie? For many men falsely accused of rape, the cost is their careers, reputations, their lives. Today we'll discuss the story of Matt Ariza, who had his NFL career ruined after he was accused of a vicious gang rape. A year later, the truth has finally come out. Also, more alleged details about the mass shooting at a Dallas outlet mall have come out, and they make no sense at all. We're supposed to believe that the killer was a Mexican neo-Nazi inspired by the Jewish woman who runs the Libs of TikTok account. In our daily cancellation, the tipping scourge has made its way to self-checkout machines. We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, if I could do a Trump impression here, I would do it, but I can't. So our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar, inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval, dating all the way back to biblical times, and that is gold. I've bought gold from Birch Gold in preparation for uncertain economic times, and you can trust them too. You can now own gold in a tax-sheltered account, retirement account, from the, with the help of Birch Gold. That's right. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. The best part is you don't pay a penny out of pocket. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? You can protect your savings with gold. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They have thousands of happy customers. I'm one of them. If you want to be one of them, you can text Walsh to 989898 to get your free info kit on gold. Again, text Walsh to 989898 today. These days, we're told that there is no such thing as objective truth. Every person gets their own truth based on their perceptions of their own, quote, lived experience. And each individualized truth is just as valid as every other individualized truth. And according to this view of the world and of reality, there's really no such thing as a lie because to lie is to intentionally misrepresent the truth, but you can't misrepresent something that doesn't actually exist. And this, this relentless campaign to obliterate objective truth is always doomed to failure. The truth still exists. Those who deny it or falsify it are not asserting their own truth, but simply telling a lie. And um, lies have consequences, severe and appalling consequences oftentimes. Consequences that all too often are felt by everyone but the liars themselves. And that brings us to the story of Matt Ariza. So early last year, everything was basically looking up for uh, Matt Ariza, the NFL prospect from San Diego State. He was a punter, not a position that usually attracts much attention, but Ariza was a special case because while still playing in college, his punting prowess had earned him the perhaps vaguely sacrilegious nickname Punt God. Finishing his uh, final college season, he, he averaged uh, 51 yards per punt, which was an NCAA record. After getting drafted by the Buffalo Bills in the sixth round and booting an 82-yard an punt in a preseason game, all signs indicated that he would live up to his nickname in the NFL and, and uh, have a long and illustrious professional career. Punters don't get a lot of press or accolades. They don't make as much money as other positions, but they also don't take a lot of hits, which means that a good punter can easily play for a decade and a half or even longer. So everything was set up for Matt Ariza. Nothing could get in his way except a lie and a media eager to amplify it. In August of 2022, shortly after being officially named the starting punter for the Bills, a civil lawsuit was filed claiming that he, along with two of his uh, teammates in college, viciously and brutally gang-raped an underage 17-year-old girl at an off-campus party a year before. 
There was, so far as the public or the media knew, no evidence that the rape occurred, no proof other than the word of the accuser. But that's all the media needed, of course. Immediately, the frantic headlines were published, labeling Ariza a rapist and an abuser, relaying the alleged facts of the case, which were graphic and harrowing. In a story that's oddly reminiscent of the Kavanaugh allegations, the alleged victim claimed that she was at this party and she was led, quote unquote, uh, drunk and half conscious to a back bedroom in the home where she was abused by three men over the course of an hour and a half, leaving her bloody and crying. She says that eventually she was able to get out of the, uh, the room and she, she ran out of the room bruised and bloodied and crying. CBS did an interview with the accuser at the time. Here's what she said. I was having to deal with this horrible traumatic experience that I never asked for. The accuser, who just turned 18, alleges that Ariza and two other players assaulted her for more than an hour at a party last October. I was bleeding, I was crying, and my friend asked me what happened, and I told her I had just been raped. She wrote in her journal the next day, all I keep replaying in my mind is being face down in a random bed, just waiting for it to be over. Ariza's attorney says his client will be vindicated. What do you think is happening here? He had what we call the deep pockets of these three young men. And uh, I think it's, I still think it's a money grab on her part on behalf of Mr. Ariza. What does that feel like to you? That makes me really sick um, to the stomach. Um, I reported it a day after it happened. I was 17 years old and I had no idea who Matt Ariza was. Hmm. Makes her sick to her stomach, she says. Well, it didn't take long for the bills to cave to the public pressure, and they released Ariza, a decision that was strongly criticized by the media at the time, not because it was based on extremely questionable allegations, but because it wasn't made quickly enough. Here's ESPN at the time taking the bills to task for not throwing Ariza under the bus sooner. Listen. They were aware late July. It happened now in late August. How do you believe the bills look now? The bills don't look good. <clears throat> the bills don't look good because when you hear the details, we're hearing it now. So it's fair to surmise that if the general counsel for the bills spoke to the lawyer of the alleged victim, then you had that information and those details before a few days ago. So the fact that you had those details and you waited this long to act, that's a problem for the Buffalo Bills. As a result, it becomes a stain to some degree on the NFL, not the league office. I'm just talking about the NFL shield because we're talking about an NFL team, even though this is a player that it happened, that, that allegedly it happened it, while he was in college yeah. at San Diego State. Yep. My point is, is that even though it happened at San Diego State with a college student, allegedly, while he was in college, the bottom line is he was a member of the Bills. And once he was a member of your organization and this came to light, you were supposed to act immediately, especially since your general counsel brought it to you. So it was a stain on the Bills, on the NFL, and he's right, but not for the reasons that he thinks. Now, I wanted to let that play out a little bit because you see that at no point in that discussion or any other discussion on ESPN or any other news channel 
Did anyone seriously stop to consider that a story of a violent, bloody sexual assault in the middle of a college party that lasted an hour and a half might not be totally credible? Now, they may have used the word alleged to cover themselves, but the message was clear. As far as they're concerned, as far as they were concerned, Matt Ariza was guilty. A couple of months after Ariza lost his job in the NFL, the prosecutors announced that they wouldn't be pressing charges in the case. But there were no additional uh, details, no additional information was released about that to, to explain that decision until this past week. So 10 months later, 10 months for the narrative to set itself in stone. And now the truth comes out. And as it turns out, Matt Ariza was not even present at the party when the alleged rape occurred. And not only that, but evidence strongly suggests that no rape occurred at all. Here's Yahoo News, quote, a fuller picture of what police and prosecutors found, however, is now available via a 200 plus page transcript of a 100 minute meeting obtained by Yahoo Sports, where a de deputy district attorney offered a detailed explanation to the girl and her attorneys. Perhaps most notably, the district attorney's office concluded Ariza couldn't have uh, led the girl into the alleged gang rape because he had left the home at about 1230 a.m. an hour prior to when evidence suggests the alleged gang rape would have occurred. Quote, he wasn't even at the party anymore, Deputy District Attorney Trisha Amador explained to the girl. Later, Amador stated of the timeline of the events, quote, all I know is that at that point, suspect Ariza is gone from the party. Uh, prosecutors and police interviewed 35 witnesses, including friends of the accuser. They also reviewed video of the sexual encounter that the accuser claims was a rape, because there's video of it. Ariza isn't present in the videos. And there's no indication in the footage that the sex was anything but consensual. According to the, the physical evidence and witness testimony compiled by investigators, which again includes friends of this girl, this was not a story of an underage girl being taken to a room against her will and brutalized. Instead, the picture painted by those who investigated the case uh, is quite a bit different. And it goes something like this, according to the evidence that they compiled. So the girl, who was 17 at the time, went to a college party a few blocks from her house. She, uh, she, she entered the party through a back gate. Multiple witnesses testified that she told people at the party that she was 18. Multiple witnesses said that they heard her saying this multiple times to multiple people at the party, saying that she was 18. Uh, investigators actually found video footage from a party the night before that this girl was at, where she's on camera saying that she's 18. Yahoo News reports, quote, the civil lawsuit alleged that, that soon after the girl's arrival at the party, she was separated from her friends, and Ariza led her over to the side of the yard of the house, uh, yard of the house where he told her to perform sex against her consent. Ariza, however, has always maintained that he never led her into a private area of the backyard; that she walked back there while he was urinating. Witness testimony, again including the girl's friends, played a role in prosecutors uh, declining to press charges. "Quote: The witnesses say that shortly after you arrived at the party, you left and came back shortly thereafter." The DA Trisha Amador said. And you told a friend, quote, I just had sex. You didn't appear unhappy. You appeared to be having fun. And the encounter on the side of the house with Matt, suspect Ariza, was consensual. Amador also explained to the girl that additional witness, uh, witnesses uh, alleged that at this period of time, quote, you were approaching men at the party saying, I want you to bleep me. And if you don't bleep me, you're a bleep. The report continues, quote, while the civil lawsuit had claimed that uh, right after the Ariza encounter in the side yard, the football player led her into the bedroom in the house, the timeline established by authorities was much different. Prosecutors said that shortly after being with Ariza, witnesses said the girl again left her group and came back to report she had sex with a different man. Again, prosecutors explained the witnesses suggested it was consensual. 
Quote, you had uh, returned and then came back and said you had sex with a guy. This would have been the second person that would have been in the progression of the evening, Amador said. Again, you're described as being okay, not scared or distraught. You seemed happy. It seemed consensual. Again, you're not intoxicated at this point that anybody would know your intoxication level to the point that they would not be able to tell that you weren't able to give consent, Amador said. So this was the second person that this girl decided to have sex with that evening. And by this point, uh, Matt Ariza had left the party. This encounter was captured on cell phone video, and according to prosecutors, there's no indication in the footage that the sex was non-consensual. All in all, the evidence, again, seems to strongly indicate that this girl went to this party, um, accessed it through the, the back door, lied about her age multiple times, solicited sex with multiple men. As witnesses saying that she was the one going and soliciting it, um, bragged about her sexual conquests in the moment, had consensual sex repeatedly over the course of several hours, and then at some point shortly after this sex marathon decided that she had been raped. According to this version of events, and this is the version that's actually supported by witness testimony and physical evidence, she came up with a story which was then used to destroy an innocent man's life. Matt Ariza, um, the latest on him is that he plays for the Mexican Football League with hopes of making his way back to the NFL. But that's, that's unlikely to happen. Even after this, everything comes out. After being vindicated in this way, his name and reputation have been permanently stained. Meanwhile, the accuser um, still wants to bring the lawsuit to trial, hoping for a friendly jury that will be persuaded more by her tears than, than by the facts of the case. And she might get exactly that. If she doesn't prevail at trial, she still gets to go on with her life like nothing ever happened. See, as always, false accusers um, are playing with house money because either their plan works and they get paid or it doesn't work and uh, no harm, no foul as far as they're concerned. They suffer no consequences at all. This is the way the system is set up, but, but it doesn't have to be set up this way. It seems incredibly obvious to me that false accusers, those who are proven to be false accusers, if it's proven, as it seems to have been in this case, with evidence, they should face the same penalty that we would give to rapists. And by the way, I think that actually guilty and convicted rapists should go to prison for life. You know, I'd be in favor of life sentences, at a minimum, for actual rapists. And I would be in favor of life sentences for those who falsely accuse someone of rape. Because to falsely accuse someone of rape is, is just as bad as being a rapist. There is no moral distinction between the two. Because after all, if this girl had her way, Azira would, um, or Isa rather, would not only be fired from his job and have his reputation permanently ruined, which is a terrible fate on its own. Okay, when we talk about someone's reputation, we say, right, ruins your reputation. We're not just talking about, like, they're embarrassed by something or something embarrassing happens. This is, this is your whole life. This is your name. This is who you are. It's been dragged through the mud. This is, like, every person you encounter for the rest of your life. You've got this uh, scarlet letter that you're wearing around on your chest. But it's not just that. If she had her way, he would also be in prison. He'd be locked behind bars as a rapist and suffering all of the consequences that come with being a rapist in prison. You could easily make the case that false, false accusations are a form of attempted murder. You're trying to take a man's life away from him. 
And if he can't take his life, he'll take everything he values in his life, his job, his livelihood, his friendships, his relationships, his reputation, his name. And the fact that this is often done by women who are simply embarrassed because they behaved whorishly only makes it worse. Now, we, we, we can't know the, the actual motivations of any specific person who, who makes false accusations but um, because we can't see inside their minds and their souls. But it seems that often, you know, this is the motivation. Embarrassed because of the way that you behaved, because you behaved shamelessly, sh- shamefully and shamelessly. And so you're trying to, you know, recover your ego and your own reputation by destroying somebody else. It can also be motivated by, uh, by vengeance, you know, need for revenge, some kind of sick power play. But really casually destroying someone's entire life because you're embarrassed is, it's psychotically evil. And like so much other evil in our society, it goes unpunished most of the time. Because we are not a society that values truth, we don't appreciate the real cost of a lie. And we're also beholden to the left's victimhood hierarchy. Matt Riza, as a white male football player, simply didn't have enough victim points, or any at all really, to have his side of the story taken seriously. These are the factors that create the perfect storm that has destroyed the lives of many men. It's not, it's not fair. It's not just. But it's also an unfairness and an injustice that young men should always be aware of. And the best way to protect yourself from it, it's not foolproof, okay, but it's uh, nearly so, is, especially if you're a young man, stay away from hookup culture completely. Now, you certainly don't deserve to be labeled a rapist because you consensually hooked up with some random girl who regretted it the next day, but that might be what happens. There, there are a lot of reasons to reject hookup culture. This is far from the only reason, but um, it's reason enough on its own. Now, let's get to our five headlines. Have you been thinking about going back to school to finish your degree, or are you just starting your college journey, but you have little time to be in person with classes? Grand Canyon University's online programs are designed to make earning your degree easy and accessible no matter your age or stage in life. Whether you're a busy uh, professional looking to advance your career or a stay-at-home parent juggling family responsibilities, their online courses give you the flexibility you need to learn on your own terms. Grand Canyon University specializes in helping you fit your bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree into your busy day. From scholarship to customized scheduling, your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. So why wait? If you're ready to take your education to the next level, you need Grand Canyon University. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. That's gcu.edu. The uh, story of the Texas mall shooter gets stranger and stranger by the day. This was a... um, a Hispanic man named Mauricio Garcia, and not the name that you would expect for an alleged white supremacist, quote unquote, or the ethnicity that you would expect. Um, you know, when someone tells you about those oh, white supremacist that uh, committed a mass shooting, and you don't know the person's name, but um, maybe you're guessing what the name might be. You, you would never guess Mauricio Garcia as the name. That's what we're told. Um, And shortly after the shooting occurred, hours later, we had all kinds of alleged details of his background, his ideological views. And uh, we're told again that he's a Mexican neo-Nazi white nationalist 
And this is largely based on alleged postings of his on a Russian social media site. So Mexican neo-Nazi posting on a Russian social media site. Here's NBC News. A social media page appearing to belong to a gunman who killed eight people at a Dallas area outlet mall had shared extremist beliefs with rants against Jews, women, and racial minorities posted since September, as well as posts about struggling with mental health. Mauricio Garcia, 33, maintained a profile on the Russian social networking platform OKRU, um, including posts referring to extremist online forums such as 4chan and content from white nationalists, including Nick Fuentes and uh, anti-Semitic white nationalist provocateur. In the weeks before the attack, Garcia posted more than two dozen photos of Allen Premium Outlets, where an officer killed him after the shooting Saturday, and surrounding areas, including several screenshots of Google location information, seemingly monitoring the mall at its busiest times. Many of his posts referred to his mental health. In his final post, he lamented what his family might say and wrote that no psychologist would have to be would be able to uh, fix him. In another post, he made disturbing comments about what makes a mass shooting important, and, quote unquote, and praised a person who opened fire at a private uh, Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee this year, killing six people, including three children. The shooter, uh, along with that, also posted a, um, a series of, um, oh, a little bit more from NBC, the shooter also posts a series of links to other sites, including a YouTube account that featured a video published the day of the shooting. In it, he removed a screen mask and said, not quite what you were expecting, huh? Uh, he also posted photos of a flak vest emblazoned with patches, one of them with the initialism for right-wing death squad, a popular meme among far-right extremist groups. And then he also had uh, supposedly swastika tattoos. We're also told that he allegedly posted some content from Tim Pool. So Tim Pool's trending all of yesterday because he was mentioned in some of this content. And uh, he had another post, allegedly, which begins with the words, this post was inspired by libs of TikTok. And then, and then the post goes into a rant about Jews and how he admires Hitler or whatever. So, so here's the full picture that's been painted for us that we're expected to believe. A Mexican neo-Nazi with a page on a Russian social media site was an admirer of Tim Pool and Nick Fuentes and Hitler but also was a fan of the trans shooter that shot up a Christian school and was inspired by Libs of TikTok in his Jew hatred, even though the woman who runs Libs of TikTok is Jewish herself and has never posted, obviously, any anti-Jewish content. Does that make sense? Did all that seem clear to you? Make total sense? Oh, not at all? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you take this at face value, I, I don't know what to tell you. Meanwhile, even according to this official narrative, this guy was uh, apparently openly posting his intention to commit this shooting, posting photos from his reconnaissance of the location, and no intelligence agency ever got wind of it. Yet another mass shooter who's out, you know, basically openly announcing, hey, I'm going to commit a mass shooting, everybody. Here's where I'm going to do it. I'm posting pictures of it. And our intelligence agencies had no idea. Uh, too, still too busy tracking the, uh, you know, maybe the, the people, at the, the parents at PTA meetings and school board meetings, the real domestic terrorists. And then the shooting happens. So intelligence agencies had no idea about it, no matter how often he was announcing his plans. Uh, and then it happens. And then immediately after that, everyone knows everything about his entire social media profile, including his obscure profiles on random Russian websites. The whole thing is, uh, is obs- I mean, call me a conspiracy theorist. I don't care. I, I don't, it doesn't just smell funny. It, it reeks. 
Okay, first of all, Tim Pool, can we just say, is a moderate. He's, uh, and I don't think he would have any issue with me saying that. I, I don't know that he would, he would disagree with that characterization. He's ne- I've never heard him say anything remotely radical. Um, he's, like, he's like a nice guy. Remember, he, he got, he got kind of annoyed at me because I was being too mean to Dylan Mulvaney, if you remember. So, and this is the guy who helped to radicalize a Mexican neo-Nazi? Libs of TikTok is, again, a Jewish woman who reposts content from leftists. How, how would she inspire this? And the target doesn't even make sense on the theory that this was some kind of right-wing terror event. He wasn't shooting up a drag queen story hour or a, or a gay bar or something. This was an outlet mall in Dallas. And you could see he's shooting randomly. He gets it's, it's, it's not a targeted, it, wasn't, it didn't appear to be targeting any specific sort of person. He gets out of his car and just immediately starts shooting at whoever happens to be walking by. So the whole thing, the, the version of events that we're getting from the media right now, it doesn't make sense to me. And, and meanwhile, the Covenant school shooting, this shooting happened a couple of days ago. And all of this information, this alleged information came out, again, within hours, really. The Covenant school shooting was well over a month ago. Still a mystery. Or we're supposed to believe it's a mystery. We've, given, we've been given no official information about this person's uh, motive. In this case, there's an actual manifesto, which we were told in the, in, the, in the hours, in the moments immediately following the attack, we were told by the police chief that, that the uh, manifesto does outline her motivations, and he indicated that the fact that she was trans played a role in motivating the crime. That's what the police chief said. And then uh, and that's the last, the last we heard of it, really, officially. And then after that, we heard nothing. And then we started hearing rumblings, you know, uh, unconfirmed reports from anonymous people saying that, oh, yeah, the manifesto, it really doesn't say any much at all about why she did it. It's, uh, but we can't release it, though, because it would be a, a huge security problem. It would interfere with our investigation into a dead person if we release the manifesto. We never see the manifesto. We don't get all these social media. This is the thing you notice, very interesting uh, f- phenomenon here where when a, when a mass killing occurs and the person who commits the killing is not, you know, in the narrative is not convenient for the media. Have you noticed that we, that in those cases, huge coincidence, the perpetrators never have a social media uh, footprint. You know, it's, 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 these are people, it's, it's always someone who's, well, apparently they didn't post on social media at all. No Instagram, no Facebook, Twitter, nothing. But if it's someone who the media tells us is a white nationalist or a neo-Nazi, then we get everything they've ever posted, including on platforms that we didn't even know existed. It's not just the Covenant School shooting. Uh, what about Waukesha? Years later, what, what was the motive behind that? Still supposed to be obscure. If you see the way of this dynamic here and it doesn't and it seems normal to you and you're willing to take this at face value, then I, I can't help you. There's nothing I can say to you. And it wouldn't surprise me, and I, I'm not making any official prediction, but it, it would not surprise me if the uh, manifesto were to come out soon now, like maybe even this week. Maybe now the, the manifesto does come out. 
And we'll see that, oh, but you know, there's nothing in the manifesto at all about trans. It's a bunch of random ramblings you can't even tell. You, you can't discern anything from it. it. Took us a month to release it, over a month. We couldn't release it for over a month. What we were doing in that month, who knows? But right, well, here it is. And you see, there's nothing there. It wouldn't surprise me if that were to come out this week. Um, all right, this is from the Daily Wire. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg announced on Monday that the agency introduced rules requiring airlines to reimburse customers who incur expenses due to certain delayed and canceled flights, a move which comes as the industry faces elevated demand and a constrained labor force. The proposed rules, which would apply when an airline delays a flight for more than three hours or cancels a flight for a controllable reason, would mandate that the firms offer compensation for stranded passengers as well as a meal or meal voucher, overnight accommodations, and ground transportation between the airport and hotel. Uh, so they made this big announcement yesterday. This is what they're working on. Biden was on hand for the announcement, though it was difficult at first to tell what exactly he was trying to announce. Let's listen. Thank you, Secretary Buttigieg. Thank you all for being here. Please sit down. As we approach Memorial Day this weekend, uh, and Memorial Day weekend, I'm rushing it, and a busy summer travel season, I'm here to talk about steps my administration is taking to make air travel better for all Americans. The airline industry is a key part of our economy, and they've been critical partners in a number of important initiatives from requiring employees to get COVID vaccines and addressing the supply chain problems over the last couple of years. But I know how frustrated many of you are with the service you get from your U.S. airlines. Okay, well, I can make out some of that anyway. Um, but, you know, no, no big deal. Again, just the president of the United States can't speak. Can't, he's gotten to a point where he cannot, he sounds like a drunk man all the time. He sounds like he's, you know, he just had, uh, he just finished a bottle of wine in, in the span of an hour. That's how he sounds all the time. And, but he's running for re-election. Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's give him four more years. What could possibly go wrong? Um, press conference continues, and, and here he is explaining the exact uh, details of this very exciting plan. That's why I'm announcing a second critical step today to protect American consumers. Later this year, my administration will propose a historic new rule that will make it mandatory, not voluntary, but mandatory, for all U.S. airlines to compensate you with meals, hotels, taxis, ride shares, or re and rebooking fees, and cash, miles, and or travel vouchers whenever they're the ones to blame for the cancellation or delay. And that's all on top of refunding the cost of your ticket. Airline passengers in Canada, for example, in the European Union and other places already get these compensations. And guess what? It works. Oh, my gosh. I, 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 I can never get used to it. I don't know if you've gotten numb to it at this point, but I can never get used to the fact that our president is, is, is a senile man who can't speak. Did he say rebooking food? If you have to rebook your food, you can uh, rebook your food. So what, what is this, um, aside from the fact that the president is senile? Well, this, first of all, is the Biden administration continuing its quest in its quest to find something for Pete Buttigieg to do, um, something other than solve actual transportation-related problems, because there's a lot when it comes, comes to that. As far, for Pete Buttigieg's entire tenure, we've had supply chain problems and, you know, the, the ports are all jammed up. And we've got trains derailing all over, all over the place and dumping toxic chemicals into the water supply. It would seem like there's a lot for him to do. But they don't want him to do that because that would involve solving actual problems. But Pete Buttigieg is an incompetent moron. 
and has never done anything in his life. And so uh, they, can't, they can't set him to work doing that. So they need to find some not real problem for him to fix. And uh, this is what they came up with. It's also the Biden administration trying desperately to get some kind of win on the board. Okay, they want to get one in the win column at least. Got to get a few points on the board before election season really kicks off. And they've settled on this. But this is, first of all, pointless. Okay, this is the classic example of the, the government identifying something that is, it is an issue. Okay, we do have a lot of problems at our airports. Anyone who's been to an airport re- recently realizes that. Um, but they come up with a solution that doesn't solve anything. Because airlines already reimburse for flights canceled or uh, you know, delayed by, for, for long amounts of time for reasons that are their fault. That's always been the trick. If your flight gets canceled, they'll reimburse you. Uh, they'll put you in a hotel overnight. They'll give you meal vouchers. Most, most uh, airlines will do that. They'll do all that if it's their fault. If it was a, as it says in, the, uh, in this, the, the new language of this policy, if it's a controllable reason, they'll always do that. Um, but their way around it is to say, well, it wasn't our fault. We didn't have it. It was air traffic control. It was weather. It was this. It was that. They can always point to some other thing that was outside of their control. And there's no way for you to confirm it. You know, if you go and your flight gets canceled and you're stuck, you're stranded in the airport overnight and you're waiting in line at customer service with 50 other uh, disgruntled people, you get up there and you say, uh, you know, you got to put me up in a hotel. I'm stuck here. And they say, well, well, sorry, sorry. It was an air traffic control issue. How are you supposed to confirm that? Are you going to call up air traffic control yourself and look into it? You can't. So that was always the uh, the loophole, and that loophole is still in place. It hasn't changed anything. All, all it does is it adds another layer of bureaucracy to a system that's already drowning in bureaucracy. Because it's also always been the case at airlines that if something happens and they're not willing to reimburse you or you have some kind of problem with the airline, uh, they can all, they'll always tell you, oh, well, if you have an issue with this, if you have any problem, then uh, here's this number. You can call this number. Um, and then after you call this number, hit that number, hit a nine, hit a five, hit a two, hit a one, uh, wait on hold for you know three or four hours, and then uh, hit another thing. And you'll talk to someone and you'll tell them their problem. And they'll say, well, we've got to put you on hold and send you over to this department. And that's already been the case. And now the federal government's getting involved even more than it already is. Um, Is that going to make that process more efficient? Obviously not. But the really frustrating thing is that, as I said, there is is a problem here that that air travel is uh, a nightmare. And that does cause real problems for people. It affects people's lives, those who have to travel a lot. And the government could do something significant to help alleviate this problem. Uh, And it's something that they could do directly. And that would be to abolish the TSA. Okay, you could make, they could make traveling, the traveling experience easier, quicker, more efficient. They could do all that by just getting rid of the TSA. But that's the one thing that they won't do. Because they're not going to, when they're trying to come up with solutions to problems, they're automatically going to dismiss any solution that involves them being involved less. Any, any solution that takes power, authority, uh, money away from them is not a solution. That, could, that gets crossed off the board immediately. That doesn't make it on the board in the brainstorming session. But so often, that is the actual solution. You get rid of the TSA, it's not going to solve every problem. 
but it would make the experience a lot more efficient. People would would miss there there be quite a there'd be uh, fewer people, significantly fewer people who miss their flights because they're not hung up on these long TSA lines. And TSA, which as we as we talked about before, is is nothing but security theater. That's all it is. It's a theatrical production. Um, they've done many tests on this, and they've found that um, not only is there there's not there has not been in 20 years. There's not been one confirmed case of a TSA agent thwarting a terrorist attack. And if you ask about this, the official story from the government is, well, we can't uh, give you any ex- examples because that would be a national security threat. Yeah, right. I, give me, if they actually, if there was an actual terrorist who had a whole plan and was trying to sneak on board and, had, and he was thwarted by a TSA agent, that would be, we would never hear the end of it. Are you kidding me? They wouldn't be able to stop themselves from telling us all about it. There'd be a national day of, uh, of celebration. They'd be giving a medal to this guy. So the fact that they haven't told us tells us that the TSA has never thwarted a terrorist attack. There have been many tests that have been conducted to see how effective the TSA is in actually stopping people from sneaking things on board. Um, and they fail those tests. They fail them miserably almost every single time. And the, and, and the TSA was, we always have to remember, it, they, they came up with this entire elaborate solution after 9-11, completely unnecessary. Because you know what could have thwarted 9-11 on the day, you know, in the moment? Um, if they had locked cockpit doors, that probably would have thwarted it. Lock cockpit doors and you arm the pilots and certainly, there would have been no 9-11. Well, now we do have locked cockpit doors, and they do arm the pilots. And that's that's enough. That's enough to address the 9-11 factor. All the rest of this, you got to take your shoes off. You can't bring, a, you know, hair gel on board. It's got nothing to do with stopping terrorist attacks. And, and you know what frustrates me the most about this whole thing? Is that the one, the one potential advantage to having a single agency in charge of airport security all across the country is that you would think, if you didn't know any better, you would think that it would, at a minimum, there would be a standardized procedure in place, which would make things a little bit more efficient because everyone knows what they're getting into when they get to airport security. But somehow, 20 years later, the the procedures still are not standardized. They're slightly different depending on what airport you're at. Not different enough. I've I've heard some people say, well, they don't want to standardize it because uh, then the terrorists will know what to expect. So they want to keep them on their toes. Yeah, they're not different enough to throw terrorists for a loop. They're just different enough to cause little problems and delays that add up. Things like they, the TSA can't decide. When you get up to the uh, TSA agent before you go through the, uh, the scanner, um, do, you, do you give them your ID and your boarding pass, or you just give them, give them your ID? You can't decide. This d- depends. Do you take your laptop out of the bag, or do you not? Do you take your belt off, or do you not? I mean, they, they, can't, there's, there's, they can't decide what it's going to be. And so it's different depending on the airport. And the other thing is that the, the TSA agents, they get annoyed at you if you don't know the specific procedures that are in place for this one airport where they happen to be. So the TSA agents expect is that there's going to be slightly different procedures at every airport and that you will know all of those and you'll have them memorized. And so if you're, if you're a little bit lagging behind because you're not familiar with the procedures at this airport, they start yelling at you and get annoyed. So that's what we get from the uh, TSA. Um. All right, I also wanted to mention this before we get to the comment section. Uh, Daily Mail has this story. Transgender woman 
as always, I have to give the uh, qualifier. This is I'm reading the language in the Daily Mail report, which is not accurate language, but this is what it says in the Daily Mail. A transgender woman has been sacked by Starbucks after showing after footage showed her berating a female customer and allegedly assaulting a man who filmed the incident. The clash broke out at a Starbucks um, branch near the uh, ferry terminal of Southampton, Hampshire, on Sunday, April 30th. The uh, 56-second clip shows the employee on the same side of the counter as the customer arguing with the customer. There's something that precipitated this, that uh, the, the customer said something that the trans-identified person felt was transphobic, and that led to, there's footage of it, which we'll play here. Apparently, we said something transphobic. You actually, actually, you actually. All right. So that was uh, that was the encounter between the the transgender employee who, who apparently, according to Daily Mail, was fired, which is uh, which is. You know, which is good at least. I wasn't expecting that. Um, kind of expects when I first saw that footage, I expected they would throw the customer right under the bus and say that, hey, you know, our trans employees, they, they're fighting for their lives. It's a genocide. They have to do what they can to survive. I expected something like that from Starbucks, but uh, they decided not to go that route, which is which is fine. Credit to them for that. Only a little tiny bit of credit. Um, and I, I appreciate the woman too. I, I don't know what I don't know what led up to this incident. I don't know what she said that the trans identified person felt was transphobic. I don't care. Like whatever she said, it was fine. Um, so I'll credit her for standing her ground. The, the only Monday morning quarterback uh, thing I will do here is is to say that you know, she she seemed rather desperate to. Um, vindicate herself of the claim that she was transphobic. So she kept saying, don't you dare call me transphobic. How dare you call me transphobic? I would prefer, and this is just future reference for anyone who finds themselves in a situation like this, which if you've never been in a situation like this, um, most likely eventually you will be. And so what what I think you should say is not, how dare you call me transphobic? It's more like, Get out of my face. How dare you get in my face about this? How dare you think that it's my job to support your self-perception? Okay, you're, you're playing make-believe here. How dare you get in my face and expect me to play along? Okay, why don't you just leave me alone? Okay, well, how is this my job? I'm just here. I'm here to get a coffee, okay? That's all I want. I want a coffee. I don't want to get sucked in to your ego trip. Hey, you're, you're walking around back in the counter and you've created this, this uh, fantasy world for yourself where you're a girl, even though you're not. How's that my issue? Just give, pour me the damn coffee. How about that? That's what I would like to hear her say. Pour me the damn coffee. This is not my problem. As far as the transphobic claim, oh, you say I'm transphobic? Oh, okay. No, I don't care. 
Oh, you think I'm transphobic? Listen to me. I don't care that you think that. It doesn't matter to me. What I do care is that you're getting in my face and trying to force me, compel me, it's like draft me into, um, into supporting your self-perception. Not my job. So a slight, slight adjustment, but, uh, but overall, at least she stood her ground there. Um, all too often we see exchanges like that where the person who's really the victim in this, the person who's being accosted, uh, backs down and says, oh, well, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that you, I had no idea. Well, clearly you're, you're, you're a woman. You're, look at you, a beautiful woman. So she didn't do that. I appreciate that at least. All right, let's get to the comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Pro-life battle has finally left D.C. and it's going to the grassroots. As one of the largest pro-life organizations in the world, no one's in a better position than 40 Days for Life to end abortion in a post-Roe America. With uh, 1 million volunteers in 1,500 cities, 40 Days for Life holds peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities. Because of that, they actually have a larger presence in blue states, uh, especially California. Former abortion clinic directors say that these vigils can cause the abortion no-show rate to go as high as 75%, which is disastrous for their business. And thank God for that. These law-abiding vigils have helped close abortion facilities in San Francisco, Seattle, and Chicago, many other cities as well. They also are leading the way in efforts to prevent pharmacies from dispensing chemical abortions. You can support their work and check out their locations, podcast, and free magazine at 40 Days for Life. Com. The pro-life fight continues. It's never been more important. And for more information on 40 Days for Life, go to 40daysforlife.com. All right, we'll start with this. Not exactly a comment, but uh, this was making the rounds yesterday, and I appreciated it. Uh, someone wrote a list of the uh, 50 evilest white people, 50, mo- 50 most evil white people on earth. And, uh, you know, the list starts, number one, Adolf Hitler, not a lot of uh, Creativity there, but you know, it's. I think everyone would choose number one, Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, number two. Um, Mussolini makes the top five. We could all agree with that. Vladimir Putin makes the top ten. I think uh, way too high, especially above Stalin. Um, and then Donald Trump in the top fifteen, which uh, was a great honor for him. Um, Tom Tom Brady makes the top thirty. Tom Brady comes in at number twenty nine. I think we could all well, we could all probably agree with that. Uh, and then I'm on the list. I made number 48 of the uh, top 50 most evil white people. Uh, so number 48, I'm right there. Um, I will say, honored to be in the top 50, uh, something I can add to the accolades that I'm just racking up all over the place. Transphobe of the year, uh, most prominent uh, anti-LGBT person in the country, whatever it was from the Media Matters guy. And now top 50 most evil white person. So, and I know that beggars can't be choosers, but at the same time, um, happy to be in the top 50, honored to be there. Um, I think I deserve to be a little bit higher. Ron DeSantis is 45, Mitch McConnell's 46. I can make an argument for myself to be at least in between. You know, I think I should edge out Mitch McConnell at this point. Um, Derek Jeter is number 43. You know, I, I'd, I'd slide him down a couple slots. So, Top 50, not satisfied, though. I'm not satisfied until I make the top 10. All right. Burge says, Maddie and his flannels in front of those old smoky mountains, disingenuousness heaped upon disingenuousness. You know, I read these comments on Twitter now. It's a slightly different tenor. And I read a lot of this now. Matt with his flannels trying to put on a, this is a a fake image that he's created in his flannels. Um, What exact image like what 
character is just a, a dad in a flannel. Okay, if this is a if this is some sort of fake phony brand that I've come up with, it's the laziest one. It's the laziest brand imaginable. Um, they tried to get me to brand myself a little bit different by putting me in the in the uh, in the sports jacket, and that was too much effort. I said, I don't want to. It's like it's too much. All I want to wear is the flannel. So. Um, if this is a, if this is phony branding on my part, it's the, it's, it's extremely low effort at a minimum. You got to give me that. Uh, another comment says, what mental illness did Neely have? Bipolar, schizophrenia. The only specific info I've heard on him is all the crimes he has knowingly committed. Yeah, I think he was probably diagnosed. I, I don't know the specifics of it either. Um, as far as was, was he actually officially diagnosed with something he probably was, um, and but but that to me is not as relevant because uh, although it's clear that this guy was delusional and deranged, I'll say he was deranged. Um, as always, when we go right to the mental illness thing, same with every mass shooting, we hear about mental illness, mental health. This is something that uh, really the people on the right are more likely to do because on the left. They want to go guns, and they want to go, if they can, tie it to white supremacy whenever they can. If they can't do either of those things, then they go to mental illness. I think on the right, and at least I'll give people on the right who do this credit because it's consistent, but they'll go right to mental illness every time. And there's a, there's a, obviously that plays a role. There's a factor there. But what ends up happening is that we remove all of the guilt and blame whether this is intentional or not, and I think especially people on the right who do it, it's probably not intentional. But the effect is that we remove all the guilt and blame from the individual. We make it all about mental illness. Like these, these are all purely crazy people who had no control over their own actions. But I don't buy that. I just don't. I don't buy, I don't buy it in the kind of complete way that's, that so many people seem to. Um. I think almost everybody, and there are exceptions to this, but almost everyone has, they're acting a certain way because at some level they are choosing to act this way. Why do they want to act that way in the first place? Uh, when you dig down deep, that's, you know, you can get into mental illness and all kinds of things. You get into things about their childhood and, and uh, abuse they suffered in childhood. All that stuff is there. But even in spite of that, they chose to act this way. Um, all these mass shooters, uh, most of the time, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. And um, they, they make efforts to conceal what they're going to do. Uh, it, it, it may not be very convincing efforts to conceal what they're going to do, but it's not like they're you know, walking around in public shouting to people that they're going to do this thing. So it's clear that there are decisions being made, there are choices being made. Um, and so I still hold people accountable for that. Like, I, I don't care what mental illness you've been diagnosed with. If you commit an evil act, you committed an evil act. And I hold you accountable for that. And I honestly, I don't care what you're diagnosed with. You did that. You, you made that choice. Like, that's still you in there somewhere. So ultimately, like, there's only one person who can be immediately accountable and most directly blamed for your actions, and that is you as the individual who is doing these things. 
Um, and Rufus says, you are a hate and fear-mongering idiot. 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 Okay. We really, this, the Twitter comments might not work. I don't know. We might have to, we might have to uh, come up with a different plan. The unsupervised says, what Bluey does have is loving family members. If you don't see yourself represented in that, the problem is yours, not the show's. Uh, and Evan says, Bluey actually contains a lovely story about a boy with ADHD. He starts playing with another boy whose dad is in the army and they play army together. It, it disciplines him a bit and he can focus on the game. Okay. So I made a joke yesterday about how Bluey, and I've watched plenty of Bluey with my uh, three-year-old daughter, but I haven't seen all the episodes. Uh, I'm not a scholar on the show and maybe it's in the way that some people are. And I made a joke about it. They, they, don't, they haven't represented, you know, they, they need to have a, a dog with ADHD and a dog with anxiety disorder to really represent everyone. Apparently, there was a storyline with a, one of the characters had ADHD, except that what I'm getting from this description is that they, they found a way in the story, you know, for this character, they found a way to, you know, discipline. They found a way for him to, I guess, harness that energy and, and they found a way to focus him. And the message, unless I'm wrong, Sounds like the message of the of that episode was not that when a child is easily distracted, we need to drug them into submission. So the entire episode did not end up being one long advertisement for the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which means that it's still that's another that's problematic. As far as the left's concerned, that is also still problematic. If you're looking for something interesting to watch this weekend or this week or anytime, really check out our series, What We Saw, hosted by uh, storyteller Bill Whittle. Season one is focused on Apollo 11, and it was uh, excellent. And now season two is just as good, if not even better, What We Saw, and it's in uh, full swing. This time, Bill paints a bleak picture of the growing existential, existential threat to America due to Soviet Russia and Cuba. Episode nine details the rise of modern espionage as uh, both the Soviets and the West race to learn each other's secrets. How many warheads does the other side have? How do they work? Uh, and uh, where are they all located? While they both use different tactics for intelligence gathering, one will lead to the biggest intel hall in all of the Cold War. Uh, Bill makes you feel like you're there witnessing history firsthand. New episodes of the Cold War come out every week, but you have to be a member to see them. So go to dailywire.com slash Cold War to start watching. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. For the last few years on this show, we have been covering what I would call the pandemic of pointless tipping. Now, it used to be that tipping was expected only if you were at a sit-down restaurant or ordering a pizza for delivery. It's a simple time back then. Everybody knew the rules and expectations. You were asked to leave a tip only in very limited and specific circumstances, which meant that uh, you, could, you could tip generously when those occasions arose. It was a win-win. The waiters and pizza delivery guys, they made out pretty well, and uh, you had the opportunity to feel magnanimous. I used to tip upwards of 25%, even more for most tipping situations. I was essentially a philanthropist back in those days. But then the dam started to crack a little bit. And suddenly, places like coffee shops were putting out tip jars. And, uh, you know, why do I need to tip someone for pouring me a coffee? I could do that by myself. I'm more than happy to. Let me behind the counter. I'll, I'll handle it. Nobody ever bothered to justify the coffee shop tip jar. And we didn't have time to stop and think about it because next thing you know, sit-down restaurants started offering to-go options. But they still wanted tips even for that. We used to tip the waiter for serving the food. Now we're being asked to tip the guy who simply hands a bag of food across the counter. And we got to tip the same for that, we're told. Tipping had already gotten out of hand and we hadn't seen the worst of it yet because one day, seemingly out of nowhere, all at once, every store in America started using touchscreen tablets at checkout 
which makes it uh, even easier to add a tipping option. And this was the moment when the dam finally gave way. The simple, innocent days of tipping only on pizza night or date night were gone, and now everybody wants a tip. Every cashier at every store suddenly turns into a, a panhandler. Doesn't matter if you're at a, a bakery or a coffee shop or a fast food place or an airport or a supermarket or a gas station, a hardware store. They all want tips. They've all decided that inflation hasn't made life expensive enough as it is, apparently. And even as these industries atten- intentionally make their already too expensive goods and services even more expensive, the quality of the goods and services declined. The website retail, RetailCustomerExperience.com reported last year on a poll of over 96,000 consumers, which found that the quality of customer service has dipped dramatically. So if you've noticed a significant increase in the number of customer service workers who are totally disinterested and generally incompetent and often openly angry at you for walking into their establishment to begin with, that's not your imagination. Like we've all noticed the same thing. And yet, at this precise moment, when service has never been worse, we're being asked to pay more than we ever have for it. But at least if you're tipping a um, you know, sullen and lazy customer service employee, you're still tipping an actual employee. You're tipping someone. You're tipping a human being. Increasingly, even that is starting to change. The Wall Street Journal reports this week, quote, quote tipping at self-checkout has customers crying emotional blackmail. Zero interaction with employees during a transaction no longer guarantees freedom from the moral quandary of how much to tip. Prompts to leave 20% at self-checkout machines at airports, stadiums, cookie shops, cafes across the country are rankling consumers already inundated by the proliferation of tip screens. Business owners say the automated queues can significantly increase gratuities and boost staff pay. But the unmanned prompts are leading more customers to question what exactly the tips are for. They're cutting labor costs by doing self-checkout, but what's the point of asking for a tip? And where is it going? Says Ishita Jamar, a senior at uh, American University in Washington, D.C., who has noticed more self-serve tip cues at restaurants she frequents. Tipping tipping researchers, that's a job apparently, tipping researchers, and labor advocates say that so-called tip creep is a way for employers to put the onus for employee pay onto consumers rather than raising wages themselves. Companies say that tips are an optional thanks for a job well done. Job well done? Well, who did the job at a self-checkout machine? Me? If anyone should be tipped after I use self-checkout, it should be me. And I really should get a tip because I'm very efficient on the the self-checkout, okay? Unlike a lot of people, and they're in front of you at self-checkout, you know that's going to be a problem. They bag each thing slowly and individually and all that. I, I speed through that thing. It's one, of my, it's one of my best skills. And I've already taken on the role of the employee when I'm at the self-checkout machine. I'm scanning and bagging my own items. So the, the, the store should be tipping me for my labor, not the other way around. Self-checkout has always been kind of a, a time of internal emotional conflict for me. Because on the one hand, I appreciate how self-checkout caters to my antisocial tendencies. So I like that. I don't have to talk to anybody. That's great. On the other hand, I think it's certainly a generally unhealthy thing for society to replace human human jobs with machines. I don't think that's a good trend. Okay, it doesn't go anywhere good. And besides, I sort of resent being asked to do the job of an employee without being paid for it. I think soon we get to the point where Walmart expects the customers to come in at 3 a.m. to unload the trucks and stock the shelves and mop the floors, and they'll still ask us to leave a tip at the end of it. And most people will. See, that's the real story here. You know, it's clear that the, the tipping virus 
It's spreading uncontrollably. We all know that now. As with most things in our culture, um, the solution is to get back to the basics, to return to tradition. The only people who should be asking for a tip are waiters and fast food delivery people. Even though the food delivery apps already charge service fees and delivery fees and delivery service fees and service delivery fees, and then they ask for a tip on top of all that. So you're paying $87 for a hamburger before you add the tip. That's kind of a separate issue. Um, Waiters and delivery people, still, they can ask for tips. A few other service jobs that have been grandfathered in, valets, coat checks, etc., Everyone else can make do with the wage that they're already being paid. You're already getting paid to do your job. That's why if you're at the checkout, your your paycheck is for this right here, this interaction where I'm giving you something, you're scanning it, you're taking the card. Like That's what that's for. That's what your paycheck is for. It's for that. And that's how it used to be. And it's how it should be again. We We can get back there, but it's up to the customers to make that happen. The customers have to say no. See, this is the other element in the perfect storm that has led to this tipping pandemic. Most people in our culture, they don't know how to say no. They were never told no as kids. They never tell their own kids no. They never tell anyone no. They tolerate everything. They accept everything. And they leave a tip whenever the prompt comes up because they they don't want to say no in that context either. We have to recapture the long lost art of saying no. And as much as I complain about the proliferation of tipping... I'm really complaining on behalf of all of those people who are suckered into it because it's not actually a problem for me personally. I have no trouble saying no. I will hit the no tip option on the checkout prompt without feeling the slightest tinge of guilt. Okay, Even if it's one of those things where they they really ramp up the emotional blackmail, but by asking you, sometimes if you're in maybe say a a drive-through line and they'll say, oh, did you want to add the tip here? Probably 90% of people, in, especially then, will say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do I have no problem saying, oh, no, I don't. Thank you for the opportunity. I don't. I'll just pay. I'll pay the actual amount that's on the receipt, and that's it. I uh, Thank you so much for the opportunity to pay more, but I would, I would rather pay less, actually. I'm not stealing the goods that I purchased. I've already paid for them. I don't feel morally compelled to voluntarily pay more than what they cost. Because that's what the tip prompt is really asking. Here's your total. Would you like to make it more expensive? No, I would not like that. No, thank you. That's all. That's all we need to say. And saying no to tip, to the tip prompts, is just the start. It's good practice for all the other no's we should be saying. Emotional blackmail is a common tactic in our society, and it's used to advance all sorts of insidious agendas. The over-tipping agenda is, is not the most insidious, but it's not the least either. And the solution is the same either way. Just say no. And to those asking for undeserved tips, we can also say, you're canceled. And that'll do it for the show. Uh, This portion of the show is move over to Members Block. You become a member today by using code Walsh at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.